Well, morning, everyone. It's interesting pulling things out of the uh, thing. And those oven gloves reminded me, what's that? Do you know? Anyone know? It's sooty in the nude. Good to bring some culture into things, isn't it? <coughs> a couple of weeks ago, I spoke on the uh, simplicity of Christ and having Christ central to everything we say and do um, in this coming year. In fact, I, I looked up what I said a year ago, um, just setting the tone for the, for the year to come, and... I talked about New Year's resolutions and I was just thinking about that while we were singing there. My, I have to say the band are getting better and better and better every week. Don't you think they're, they're great, really great? And I was, I was listening and I thought, what we need is resolution, yes, but we need revolution as well. One to revolve around Jesus and one to revolutionise our own lives uh, in certain areas. We need to do that. So I want to continue on in that vein and I want to talk about the uniqueness of Christ. I think this is very important and I'm going to read you a few verses from Psalm 115 if you want to look at that. Just the first few verses. And they say this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Why? Because he's unique. He can do just what he pleases. The phrase unique means there is no other. There is no other. Not unto us, O Lord, but unto you. That was my old school motto. Is it still the same motto at Winchmore? Anyone know? Non nobis domine. No? You haven't got a school motto? Dead, do you know? <laughs> Every man for himself, is it? Or something like that. Okay, but anyway, we used to sing non nobis domine, not having the vaguest idea what it meant. But I learned since that it's Latin really for not to us, Lord, but to you. Give you the glory. But God is unique. There's no other re um, religion that is close to Christianity. There isn't. In Christianity, God takes the initiative, God takes the action needed, pays the price required on our behalf. In all other religions, and you can look them up, the God has to be appeased, has to be bought off and pacified by something, sacrifice or something. But in Christianity, God weeps for mankind and acts out of love. Why? Because Jesus is unique. So many people will claim that he's a great teacher, a great example in life. Um, he suffered martyrdom, but it was only a man. Well, the Bible contradicts this. Jesus himself contradicts this. And the experience of countless millions of believers over the years contradicts this. Jesus Christ is God. Not was, is. He's alive and patiently waiting until every one of his enemies is subdued. Now, I want to look at some of the things that make him unique. Now, what I'm doing today is doing some teaching. You know the word teaching and doctrine, they come from the same thing. 
when Jesus sat and spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, that was doctrine. So doctrine isn't dry, it's life-giving. Um, in fact, if you look in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, which is one of my favourite verses, um, when you come together, every one of you hath, and you hath various things, and one of the haths is teaching, and that is doctrine, that we come together and the Spirit moves on us and he produces doctrine in us. Um, so it's very important that we, we know that. The first thing I want to talk about is his incarnation. Now that simply means in human form. In human form. It's God becoming a man and being born at the virgin birth, which we'll look at in a minute, it's the time when God took on flesh and human nature. It's the time he left heaven and came to earth. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says this, And the word became flesh. The word is, means Jesus, by the way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I can just imagine John saying that, the glory, we saw the glory. John's a great one to read because it's full of, it's the glory of God. It's Jesus, it's the word. Now Jesus came to do a number of things, but two in particular. The first one is he came to declare what God was really like. So if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks about something, look at what Jesus said about it. He's the centre of everything. He's come to show us what God is really like. And the second thing is he came to become the second Adam. The first Adam came and failed. But he came and took on the same humanity as Adam had before Adam failed. You know what they say, that Adam blamed Eve Eve blamed the snake and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> but Jesus was a real man. He was a real man. He wasn't spirit. Some people have said um, he was some ethereal spirit that came and so when he died on the cross it didn't matter because he wouldn't have felt anything. That's nonsense. He was real flesh and blood. He got hungry. He got tired. He took on all that you and I are but without sin. He was not Superman because he left behind in heaven a lot of things. And we'll look into that as well, all these things we're going to look into. But he didn't leave behind his deity. He was always God here on earth. But he left his personal power and abilities behind to be a man like you and me. He came trusting his father to keep him. He came as a baby and he put all his trust in the Father to keep him safe. You know, there's a story about Cassius Clay that he was on an aircraft and he wouldn't do up his seatbelt. And uh, the pilot sent the steward, head steward, to, to say, look, I can't take off until you've put the seatbelt on. And Cassius Clay said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the lady said to him, Superman, don't need no aircraft. 
Philippians chapter 2, if you're looking at these things, we're looking at verse 5 to 8. I'd like to read this to you. This is something that is doctrinally called the kenosis. And it means there's people debate, what did Jesus leave behind and what did he bring with him when he came? What was it that he had that he didn't bring when he came? And this, So there's sort of, not arguments about it, but discussion. But listen to what Paul says in verse 5 of t- Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is to us, by the way. So have this attitude in ourselves, all right, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our Jesus. This is God who came down and came in human form. He stripped himself of his glory and came like this. So that's the first thing I want to say about his incarnation. The second thing is this, his pre-existence. What do I mean? Well, um, John chapter 1 again. Verses 1 to 4 say this. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just a, a little aside here. You might find Jehovah's Witnesses talk about this verse, and they want to say that it doesn't say that he was God, it says that he was a God. There's not a Greek scholar in the world who would agree with them. They put it around that that's what the Greek says, and um, I can tell you that some Greek scholars have written to the Watchtower Association saying, don't quote us because we don't think you're right. All right, but you will get that on the door sometimes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's the author of life. And he existed before. So he was there and he left heaven to come down to earth as a man. You know, in John 8, there's some interesting verses. There's an argument goes on. The, um, the Jews argued with, with him because he, s- he spoke about his pre-existence. And in verses 56 to 58 of John 8, they said this, your father, or Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now saying I am was the thing that upset them. Um, Not so much that he said he, he was here before because I am is the the phrase that the Jews used for God and God of Jews. 
when Moses said, who, who shall I say sent, sent me? He said, you tell him, I am. God is. He wasn't yesterday and not tomorrow. He is now. He's, he's covers everything. He's over on everything. In the Old Testament, the appearances of uh, God to various people, you can take Abraham as a good example. Um, things happened and Abraham had a, a face-to-face with God. Who was that? It was Jesus. Because that's his pre-existence. He was there. So, I'd like to move on now to his virgin birth. Now, Mary said something that we're all familiar with. It's Luke 1, 34. Mary said to the angel, you remember an angel came, a lot of angels knocking around there, so you couldn't move for angels in the, in the, the time of uh, this. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, the virgin birth is vital to Christianity. So when you find people who say it doesn't matter, of course it matters. You, you haven't grasped it at all if you don't understand that it had to be a virgin birth. Now, Jesus is not half God and half man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Explain that? I can't explain it. But that's how he is. He's fully God, fully man, born of a woman. And it's absolutely essential. You see, if, if it was conceived, if it was conceived by a man and a woman, then they would have been his beginning. But what happened was the eternal son was planted as a seed into Mary's womb and kept by the Holy Spirit until his birth. That's what happened. So I say that again. The eternal son was planted as a seed in Mary's womb and kept by the Holy Spirit until birth. So God and man were united. God and man were united. And that's the miracle of the virgin birth. And it had to be that way to avoid the taint that came with Adam's sin. So the next thing I want to say is this, about his sinlessness. Although having taken on humanity, unlike Adam, he never sinned. Even his worst enemies could find nothing to accuse him of. Now, I don't I haven't got too many enemies around, but if I had, they'd find something wrong. They'd say, what about the fact that you kicked the dog or you did this or I don't know what he did, threw a milk bottle at the milkman or something. <laughs> Pardon? You mean cutting me up when I'm driving? <laughs> there you go, it proves my point so precisely. If you have an enemy. <laughs> but they couldn't, they couldn't find anything to say about him. And the worst thing that they could say in the court, and I can just imagine the judge and everyone's eyes rolling up with this, was, well... He said he could pull down the, this temple and build it again in three days. You could get that from any Irish builder. <laughs> but how can you, you know, this is all they could find to say about him. Why? Because he was sinless. So we looked at his, his incarnation, his pre-existence, his virgin birth, his sinlessness. 
Now I want to look at his death. You see, God cannot die. He can't die. He's, he is life itself. But man can. And that's why Jesus became a man. That's why the Son became a man. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, the writer to the Hebrews said this, But we do see him who is made, a little, made for a little while lower than the angels. He's talking about namely Jesus. Because of his suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So I'm going to read that again. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of his suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Who does he taste death for? That's right. Does that include you? Yeah. He was made sin for us, and a death was separated from the Father. But that's how, why he could die, because he was a man. And Paul states that he died as a man. In Romans 5, I've got a new Bible. And it's interesting because it's larger print. Now what does that say? <laughs> so it doesn't fall open where it should fall open. We could read all of Romans 5, but we won't do that. But I'm going to read just from verse, verse 18, say. I'm butting right in in the middle of Paul's argument. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there <coughs> resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners... Even so, through the obedience of the one, Christ, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. That simply means the law came this straight line that shows how crooked we are. We realise now just what was going on. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Isn't that wonderful? You may get excited. Grace abounded even more. So that as sin reigned in death... And that's what happened. When sin reigned over our lives in death, that's the result. Sin reigned in death. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he did on the cross, he did for us because we're sinners. He offered himself as a sacrifice. And he did that for us. I want to move on to his resurrection. Now listen to this. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. Confucius is dead. Karl Marx is dead. Free market leaders, dead but Jesus is alive. <laughs> That's what makes the difference. A friend of mine has a work going on in China and uh, it's quite, they work in certain parts of China. I won't go into the details, but he works there. And then in their teaching, they call 
Jesus, the living Buddha, because he's a Buddhist that they're working with. But they say that Jesus is the living Buddha. So I think it's a wonderful phrase. He's the living one because the original Buddha is dead. And although people say, well, we'll call the latest guru a Buddha, he's the living Buddha. Jesus is alive. He's alive. <coughs> so the resurrection is not merely this God-man rising, but God remaining man. This is hard to grasp sometimes. He had a transformed body. You remember when he came out of the grave, he seemed to be able to walk through closed doors and do all kinds of things. This is because he had a resurrection body. I don't know how it works. The word really means transfigured when they saw him. It's that same thing that when he was transfigured in the end, he's transfigured. He wore grave clothes, they were piled up, he had holes in his side and hands. I don't understand how it works. But he's a man. And his resurrection was that the man came back. He was seen by the apostles. He was actually seen by a woman first. I think that's very significant. You know, when women have had a, a bad press over the years, over all the many years, but it was to a woman that he first appeared and it's I love that story you know when he says um, let me go because I have not yet ascended to the father what people have tended to do is make this into a doctrinal sort of statement and an issue it wasn't an issue she was hanging on to it for dear life and he's just let go you gotta let go I've got to go to the father that's what was happening but he was seen by the apostles he was seen by a couple that walked all the way to Emmaus. Whether or not they were two men or a man and wife, I, I think it might be a man and wife there somehow, going back there. He was, it said he was seen by 500 people in one turn. Paul liked to say, look, I saw him. I saw him. I love the story of Paul. He gets knocked off his donkey or whatever on the, on the road to Damascus. And there he is, and three words just revolutionise his life. He said, I realise you're God, whoever you are. Who are you, Lord? And those three words changed him. I am Jesus. What a revelation. Changed him. So Paul used to love to say, I saw him out of time. All the others saw him early on. I saw him much later on. And of course, Jesus has appeared to many people over many years. That will still happen. But this is the resurrection. He's alive. And he's a man. You know, the resurrection is our guarantee of resurrection. The fact that he was resurrected means that we can be resurrected. Because I'm a man, and I can be resurrected. Because Jesus was resurrected. So that's what's going to happen. Then there's his ascension. The ascension happened 40 days after the resurrection. And it wit witnessed by many, many people. And it represents the following things that I can think of. First of all, the return of the Son to the Father. That must have been a, a great day. Secondly, the Son taking his place back in the Godhead. When we say the Godhead, I mean the Trinity, the three of them there. He took his place there. 
It's also the son receiving glory and honour for his humiliation at the cross. It's what I just read in Hebrews chapter 2. Because of his suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honour so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So he received glory and honour. And, you know, he deserves it. He deserves it for all that he did. There's incorporating by Jesus Christ in our humanity <coughs> in the Godhead. That means there's a man in heaven. There's a man in heaven. That there in the Godhead, there's someone who knows what I feel like, what I do, how I struggle, how I succeed, everything about me because he's a man, because he took on all those things but without sin. There's a man in the Godhead. So when we talk about we pray, um, just a verse that comes to mind, when we pray, we're not praying to someone who doesn't understand what's going on in our lives. He understands perfectly. You know, Paul, when, the verse I want, when Paul was suffering various problems, he got kicked out of this city and then to another city and down the road till he ends up in Athens. Where is it? Let's have a look. And when he's in Athens, he can't help himself. He goes along to the Areopagus, he goes to the Mars Hill and there's all these debating people and some people think there was actually a court there. You could be held uh, for what you believed in this court but we, we aren't going to that. But he was there and he saw in Athens... All these idols everywhere. And someone had put one idol up and they put underneath it to the unknown God. So they made sure they got everyone in. They hadn't missed anyone out. And Paul just couldn't help himself. He reasoned with them. He's, in his reasoning, he said, God, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because... He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He's talking to Jesus. The man, the judge that's going to be there judging the world is a man. It's Jesus, but his manhood is there. So if you're worried about judgment, that God doesn't understand. I've tried hard and I've failed in this area and I'm sure God's going to judge me. God knows exactly how you feel. Exactly. There's a man in heaven. And that means he's strategically placed to help his church. I'm going to read another verse. It's, it's becoming a bit obedient, this Bible. Trying to get to 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. That's what we should be praying. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I had a lady come and knocked on the door last night. And... Uh, 
I got there, it took me a while to get to the door. When I got to the door, she'd, she'd gone, but I called her and she came back. And she said, I'm from Iran. And I'm collecting for Iranian women because of the plight that they're on, that they're in, in Iran. And she had a lot of documentation with her, a folder. She was quite an old lady. And I said, um, I understand about Iran, a little bit about it, and I'm, I'm with you there. I said, are you a Christian? And she said, I'm trying to be. And she said, my son became a Christian in Iran, and they took him, they hung him. They just hung him. Because he became a Christian. We need to pray for peace and, and uh, for those that are in an authority that the will of God gets done because we want a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour. So this little woman's going around the doors, knocking on doors, trying to raise money for, um, for a charity that's working with these folk. Anyway, let's... This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, God wants all men to be saved. You may be a Calvinist and say, well, we'd argue about these things. God's heart is that all people be saved, everyone to be saved, and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator also between God and men. And who is that? The man. Christ Jesus. He's the mediator. He understands us. And so he's strategically placed to help us as a church. We pray to a God who knows and understands us. And written on his hands is Chase Family Church. <laughs> Just below that he's got your name. The last area I want to talk about is his Pentecost. God sending the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised. And you know what it is? Pentecost is all about the sacrifice of Jesus. Just imagine this picture. Jesus comes and ascends to the Father after the cross and he says to the Father, Father, it's done. Look, I've paid the price. And the Father says, it's enough. It's enough. And the evidence of it being enough, send the Holy Spirit. Send the Spirit. I've always wanted the Spirit to go and dwell in their lives, but they, I, the Spirit couldn't be in them because of what happened. So he had to be on them in the Old Covenant, but in the New Covenant he can be in them. And that's the difference. He'll dwell in us. You can take the picture of the temple. When Solomon built the great temple, they consecrated it. On the day they consecrated it, and you see the sacrifices and everything that they did, the main thing is that the Spirit came and filled. God came to his temple and filled that place so it said the priest couldn't stand up to minister. The glory of God was so much they were flattened. God coming to his temple because of the sacrifice of that which Jesus had done. It cost God his life for us to have the Holy Spirit. For us to have that You know, you can read Acts chapter 1 and read all, all about, they say, what, what, when's this going to happen about Israel and when's that going to happen and, you know, what's going to happen in this war and, and all these things. And Jesus said, I'll tell you what, the important thing is this. The Spirit's coming and he's coming not to give you the dates, 
but to make your witness. To make your witness. And we witness to the faithfulness of God. He's dealt with sin, all these things. So you've done very well. We've talked about his incarnation, his pre-existence, his virgin birth, sinlessness, death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. This is our Jesus, and he did this for us. He went through all these things. And although it's doctrine, this is what keeps us solid. Knowing and understanding this. When I have a tendency to wander or something, I can come back to this. Because it brings me back to who he was. The unique Jesus. And he can call for us a unique response. Because of what he's done, he can speak to us and say, I want you to follow me. I want you to accept what I've done. And every one of us is unique. And I want you to be part of my kingdom. Now, if you're here and you're, you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, well, we can remedy that if you want to. You can talk to us, come and talk to us, we'll explain about that. It's not complicated, you don't need any GCEs or GCSEs. And you need a heart that says, I want to know. That's it. But maybe the Lord's spoken to you this morning. It's, it's wonderful. When you get into some of these things and you really talk about these sort of doctrines, it's just mind-blowing, really, that God himself should come down to earth and take on manhood. You know, I said when I talked about the shepherds a little while ago, why did, why did God tell the shepherds first? Because they had a heart. They've seen birth. They're helping lambs all day long, having babies. And, and they know the vulnerability of a sheep or a lamb when it's born. And so they wanted to get to this stable and see this vulnerable child and make sure that this child was looked after. It was in their hearts. But God was looking after it. And he endured all these things for us, for you and me. So I don't know what the Lord's saying to you. I suggest we have a moment's prayer. Perhaps the band could come up. We'll have a moment's prayer. And if anyone wants any prayer for anything, then feel free to come out. Maybe you've got some, something on your mind, something on your heart. But God thinks you're wonderful, you know. He thinks you're unique. You have a unique place in his heart with all the rest of us. We're all unique. I don't know how he does it. But he does it. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for the goodness of your truth and your word that we have, that we can take the, these things to ourselves, learn from them, and we marvel, Lord, at what you've done for us. We marvel. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for caring for us. Lord, we ask now that just for this moment you'll speak into our hearts anything you want to say. For the start of this new year, we want to go forward in a new way, Lord. You know if we need a resolution or a revolution, you know the difference. Lord, And we ask that you'll just speak to us now, anything you, you want us to hear. Let's have a moment's silence and let the Lord speak.
maybe the Lord's saying to you he wants you to change in some area or maybe he's saying he wants you to start something up we're going to have 20 more Christian unions maybe they're going to need plenty of people to go Maybe you need a fresh encounter with Jesus. Well, he died that you should be refreshed. Times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. That's what the Bible says. That's what happened at Pentecost when they said in the sermon there, Peter said there's times of refreshing. Times of refreshing. When a friend of mine calls up soul, God wants to lift us up. And the answer from the Lord, whatever he says, is yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We're going to worship a little more and say if anyone wants prayer or anything, then feel free to come out and we'll pray for you. Okay, guys.